Jimmy Wallington here on what is about to be Monitor 62, inviting you to listen to Ben Grower reminisce about all the New Year's Eves he's spent in Times Square, to hear a news resume of the week, and to join White House correspondent Ray Shearer for a prediction of the President's problems and plans for this coming year. And now, here's our Sunday night host, Frank McGee. December 31st, 1961, just a few hours away from the new year, which will bring to each of us we know not what. Do you meet the new year with a shout and a whistle and a paper hat? Do you greet it as a wonderful blank page on which to write new and exciting things? Or are you thoughtful and pensive on New Year's Eve? Do you ponder a little seriously about what may lie ahead? Whichever type you are, there's one thing we wonder about you. If you were given an infallible crystal ball and allowed to see what will happen to you in the 365 days ahead, would you really look into it? Would you really want to see and know? Or would you rather go along meeting each day as it comes and in your heart expecting that something good, something unexpected may happen tomorrow? After all, isn't that part of the fun of life? Now, I don't think I'd like to look into that infallible crystal ball. Do you really? All right, maybe one quick peek. Now, here's Monitor. exciting postseason bowl games, including the Senior Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, Cotton Bowl, and Pro Bowl, are coming your way on television. Brought to you by Delco DC-12 Batteries, the dry charge battery with 100% fresh starting power. For power, heart, and performance, simply say Delco. Look for the man who displays the United Delco sign. A little later tonight, following an old NBC tradition, Ben Grower will be over in Times Square to describe the coming in of 1962 in what is probably the most famous New Year's celebration in the world. Before he sets out tonight, we're going to ask Ben to tell us some of his experiences through the years as NBC's Mr. Times Square. <laughs> I don't know whether he's ever been called that, but we're giving him the name now anyway. Ben, where in Times Square are you when you broadcast the midnight celebration? It's the first time I've been called Times Square, Frank. <laughs> Square, yes, frequently. Let's see, the position is uh, on the marquee of the Hotel Astor. For those who don't know Times Square intimately, there's an, a triangle formed. The lower base of the triangle is the Times Building at 43rd, and mm -hmm. the apex of the triangle is about six blocks up at mm -hmm. the 47th Street. Right square in the middle is the... Famed Astor Hotel, a landmark since the 1900s. Toscanini stayed there when he first came to America and mm -hmm. so on. The marquee juts out uh, over the uh, uh, plaza formed by the deserted streets, deserted of traffic, that is, mm -hmm. and that's where we have our vantage point, about 30 or 40 feet above the crowd. No traffic is permitted in Times Square from approximately at 10.30 on when the crowds start to gather, 11 o'clock. Well, you're right in the center of things. You We're see in the center and above. That's mm -hmm. essentially get uh, a vantage point, a bird's eye view. Mm -hmm. It must seem awfully noisy to you right in the middle of it. Noisy? Uh-huh. 
Frank, I've been in the sheet and tube works in Pittsburgh <laughs> where I heard uh, 40-ton hammers banging away at steel. I've been in the belly of a ship as the motors were throbbing in the old days when they, in steam days. And uh, nothing parallels this surge of sound that, that starts to build around to tw 10 minutes of, uh, 15 minutes of 11. I guess you can almost feel it physically beating against physically, it. Physically, it actually has an impact. So I've seen people wince when the climactic moment comes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, I suppose, as the ball on the Times Tower ah. starts to drop. Uh, yes. Uh, what happens to the crowd? Then? Well, by tradition, let's first talk about that ball on the old... Uh, flat-iron-shaped building of the old Times building. The Times is now a block away, mm -hmm. but it's traditionally the Times building. About 30 stories above the crowd, there is a pillar illuminated a flagpole mm -hmm. uh, in lights, and at the top is a sphere mm -hmm. uh, with, with 100, 200 bulbs in it. Mm -hmm. At the moment of midnight, just maybe three seconds before, the, bu the bulb starts to move just a touch, and then at the precise instant, it slides down, this illuminated bulb. And that noise, which one had thought is indescribably at the peak, even goes higher. That extra <laughs> roar is the thing that knocks it over. <laughs> ben, how many years have you been reporting on uh, New Year's Eve in Times Square? Well, let's see. I've covered everything from eclipses in Brazil to uh, surrenders and uh, airlifts, but this one has gone on whatever the world events is going to be sure of. I'd say, I'm not sure, but it's at least 20 years. At least 20 at years. At least 20. I know I did the one in 1939, so that's 39. 59. It's 22 years. 22. Do, haven't, do any of them stand out above the others? There is a, uh, I won't say monotony, there is a similarity with one notable exception. In the war years, mm -hmm. the composition of the crowd suddenly became mostly military, mm -hmm. understandably. Mm -hmm. And the one that I never will forget was the one in 1944. Not 45, but from 44 turning to 45, mm -hmm. as the Allied forces... And, of course, as the U.S. forces felt that victory was in our grasp. Mm -hmm. D-Day was, was already eight months old. Uh, it was plain to every observer that the uh, Nazis were crumbling. The uh, Japs were to be taken care of later. But there was mm -hmm. that sense of, now we've got it in our hands. Mm -hmm. That was the maddest, the wildest, the most uh, tremendous. Mm. I understand you also covered VJ Day in Times Square. Now, there have been rumors of a, of a big conference in Washington that day. And then the news of the armistice broke at 7 in the evening. And you broadcast for many hours after that as a crowd spontaneously gathered to celebrate in Times Square. Yes, let's get the chronology. The big one in, in New Year's Eve was before VJ, yes, the uh, sense of anticipation. Yeah, and this is and then August, is August, what was it, August 14, I think. Mm -hmm. This was realization, and this had added to it the fact that there'd been a build-up for, for days, for two or three days after the two atom bombs and the mm -hmm. negotiations in Switzerland and so on. And through, some, some rumors. And rumors, plenty of rumors. Even, I think, there was a false one, as there was in World War II, World War I. World War I, uh -huh. So the crowd had started to gather that afternoon. The mobile unit was assigned. I went down with the mobile unit. My impression is it was broad daylight, five or six o'clock. Did you say seven? I think it was when the uh, word came well, from the White House that with, the armistice was... Uh, with daylight saving in August, there mm -hmm. still would be daylight, so that's right. And that, that audience, uh, audience, that crowd was different from the... There's a frenetic, a frantic, uh, desperate feeling to the midnight thing because mm -hmm. it's so quick. Mm -hmm. It's all built up into those f last five minutes. This mm -hmm. just continued. I never <laughs> saw s so many girls kissed by so many guys <laughs> whom they didn't know and, and, and enjoying it. Uh, Marines, I remember, uh, were particularly... They landed and took over. Yeah. There were two Navy boys that climbed uh, one of the flagpoles one of the lighting fixtures, about 25 feet high, most perilous thing, and shinnied up yeah. there and saluted the crowd. Yeah, great great moment. Mad moment. Everything in this world, Ben, seems to get bigger every year. Do you expect the crowd to be uh, at its biggest this year? No. The crowds at Times Square, although big, are trending down from about 700, 800,000 down to about a half a million or even 400,000. Mm -hmm. The tradition, I don't know why it built, whatever started the idea of coming to Times Square, but they used to flock in from all the city to there. Now people are getting more sophisticated, maybe a little more TVs coming them ho keeping them home and radio, mm -hmm. uh, family, whatever it is. There's a big crowd, but it's a very young crowd. These are kids. Well, Ben, does the feeling of a giant crowd like that give you any kind of a strange feeling? A very strange feeling. Uh, when you look at the crowd, you can't recognize faces. You just sense an impersonal mass. Mm -hmm. Many times as I've stood there, as the noise is building, the demonstration, I realize it's for nothing but meaningless expressions of joy, but suppose it would turn to political power. During the war, when Hitler and Mussolini were raging at their strongest, you sense the power of the mob, and you sense the thank thankfulness that we have never been 
subject to mob rule. The mob is an animal, and you see it at its fiercest, lashing its tail in a crowd like that. It's bigger than the sum of its parts, isn't it? It's That's right, and it's, it's mindless. Mm-hmm. In a state of hypnosis. Ben, one last question. Do you ever have trouble getting through the crowds to the place where you're <laughs> supposed to be? Frequently. There are two reasons. Uh-huh. One, I never leave my family and friends in time. I'm always skinning in at the last minute. And then the crowd is building and they say, Hey, fella, happy new year and grab me and yeah. try to make me a prisoner. So I have a torn coat or a button missing, but I make it. A few little mementos right. over those 22 years. Good luck in getting there tonight, Ben. And we'll be listening in to you at midnight. Fine. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Frank. And we'd also like to invite Monitor listeners to join NBC's All-Star Parade of Bands, which begins just five minutes after 11 tonight, Eastern Standard Time. You'll have a ringside table for the festivities with the live music of Count Basie, Harry James, Buddy Morrow, Gene Krupa, Ralph Martiri, Billy May, Lawrence Welk, Jerry Gray, Chico Hamilton, and Charlie Shavers. You're on the Monitor Beacon. just a moment, a complete news resume of this last week of 1961. And now, noted Washington columnist Drew Pearson. I have reported danger signals from various parts of the country of coal's contagion. In my business, I can't afford colds. I have to meet a deadline every day. Infectious germs and mouth and throat can really swarm into action. Increase a cold's discomfort. Make the cold drag on. So fight cold's contagion with Listerine antiseptic. Because Listerine kills germs on contact by millions. Let's pause now for a look at some of the most important events of the last week of 1961. Particularly those events which will continue to occupy the world's attention in the new year. The last days of 1961 have not been cheerful ones. The United Nations staggered under their impact. The leaders of the Western world spent the last days of the year worrying about how to prevent many small wars from growing into big ones. In the Congo, the fighting stopped temporarily while Katanga's recalcitrant President Chombe backed and filled on his agreement to submit to the authority of the central Congolese government. Chombe did take the first step the agreement calls for, sending a few Katanga legislators to sit with the central parliament in Leopoldville. But Chombe's cabinet refused to ratify the agreement, and this gives him an excuse not to honor it if he chooses. The noise of another small war, India's attack on Goa, reverberated in the corridors of the UN during the week. Because the U.N. could not stop the attack, some observers predicted the world organization would collapse like the old League of Nations. Adverse world reaction caused Indian Prime Minister Nehru to explain himself at a news conference during the week. Nehru said he knew he would probably be called a hypocrite, but his New Year message to the world was, work for peace. Southeast of India, Indonesia's Sukarno would like to take over West New Guinea from the Dutch. Immediately after India's attack on Goa, Sukarno threatened to use force to take over New Guinea. But during this past week, the first tentative steps were taken toward negotiating Sukarno's demands. In Laos, the carefully arranged and long-awaited conference of the three princes fell apart in less than an hour on Wednesday. They were to have set up a coalition government of communist, neutralist, and pro-Westerners, designed to hold the country against communist domination, or at least make it neutral. The communists badly want Laos, and the West wants just as badly for them not to have it. There was, however, one potentially bright spot during the past week, The world heard from General de Gaulle and other French sources that the eight-year-old Algerian war might end soon. 
Great strides reportedly were taken recently in negotiations with the Algerian rebel government. During the past week, de Gaulle announced plans to bring home much of the French army from Algeria. Relieved of the drain of the Algerian war, France in 1962 will be stronger and a more effective partner in NATO. And here at home, the last week of the old year was unusually quiet. The biggest news was the president's preparation of his major messages to the new Congress beginning next month. The president fixed on a balanced budget of $92 billion for the new fiscal year, $3 billion more than for this year. Mr. Kennedy's legislative program is expected to involve proposals for social reform, which he made during 1961, and Congress is reported to be in no mood for voting much social reform. Well, those are some of the more important events of the last week of 1961, which, as they continue to develop, will help shape our lives during 1962. cannot be trademarked, so there are many spearmint gums on the market. To be sure of getting the original Wrigley spearmint, look for the spear on the package. It is the Wrigley trademark. Some people call it a spear, some call it an arrow. Whichever you call it, it is the Wrigley trademark and is your guarantee of real chewing enjoyment. So remember... Get the package with the spear and you'll know enjoyment's here. Be sure it's Wrigley's gum. Throughout the weekend, Monitor has been looking ahead into 1962, trying to predict what is going to happen in this year ahead. Our economy, labor, space, the problems of the State Department, these are just some of the subjects we've delved into throughout the weekend. Now on Projection 62, here is NBC White House correspondent Ray Scherer to talk about the problems the President will have to deal with in 1962 and the goals he hopes to accomplish. Ray? Well, Frank, if you'll just turn on your radio and give it a good listen at 30 minutes past noon on the 11th of January, you will get a precise idea what John F. Kennedy hopes to accomplish in 1962. 
For this is the hour he is to give his State of the Union message. The forecasts are that the four things he is most interested in for the year are, one, a liberalized trade program, two, medical care for the aged under Social Security, three, a school aid bill, and four, revising the tax laws. Not one of these will be easy to get from Congress. As it looks now, the most important issue of the bunch is trade policy. Some of the president's advisors have told him Congress is not ready to make any sweeping changes here. Other advisors have told the president to tread easy, to wait another year. The president's feeling is that the fight must be joined sometime. If a liberalized trade program won't pass this year, at least a start must be made, the educational process begun. The only thing Washington agrees on at the moment is that it will be a consuming battle. Do we fall back into economic isolation, or do we get out and compete with the rest of the world? The president has taken the initiative. He is selling the program purely in terms of self-interest. Medical care for the elderly under Social Security is the same Kennedy program that was put off in the last session of Congress. Many congressmen still find it unpalatable. There seems to be some hope for a school-building program, certainly after last year. The president knows where the pitfalls are. Tax reform is another item the administration talked boldly about a year ago, but it became shunted aside. Well, now in other fields. Over the year, Mr. Kennedy has become a believer in personal diplomacy. If the Russians want to clean up the Berlin situation on reasonable terms, 1962 will find the president at another summit with Khrushchev. So far, Mr. Kennedy has refused to give ground on fundamentals. His alliance for progress is off to a hopeful beginning in four countries at least, Colombia, Venezuela, Chile, and Ecuador. The president may make another trip below the border in 1962. In matters economic, things have come the administration's way and look reasonably stable for 1962. The tight money period is past. Higher interest rates are the vogue now. The president has promised a balanced budget. He is extremely sensitive to the charge loose spender. The general prosperity, the increased tax take, run in his favor. He will have difficulty holding his labor friends in line, however. The president seems to have made no monumental dent with his plea to the unions that they use restraint on wage increases. The civil defense program will remain in something of a muddle. There will be less talk of individual shelters, more emphasis on what the communities can do. $700 million is put aside for this. In short, 1962 will find the president steadier, more experienced, a man more in control of things, a man who can now begin to go out on his own. But a president who will still tell you, if you ask him, Frank, the news will get worse before it gets better. Ray Scherer, NBC White House correspondent. Thank you, Ray. And the president obviously has a very busy year ahead in what is certainly the busiest job in the world. And, of course, we can only predict some of his problems. Many more are sure to crop up unexpectedly throughout the year. I don't think that's a prediction uh, that we're running any chance in making. Next, a commercial message. And now, noted Washington columnist Drew Pearson with an important message. I have reported danger signals from various parts of the country of Cole's contagion and increasing absenteeism from work and school. In my business, I can't afford colds or absenteeism. No matter what happens, I have to meet a deadline every day. Now, infectious germs in your mouth and throat increase a cold's discomfort, can make the cold drag on. But gargling with Listerine antiseptic does a terrific job of killing these germs by millions. In fact, in 12-year tests, thousands of people who gargled with Listerine antiseptic twice daily had fewer, milder colds. So ladies and gentlemen on that record, and as a Listerine user, remember, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. To guard against colds contagion, take a tip from one who knows and gargle at least twice daily with Listerine antiseptic. On this New Year's Eve, we're able to bring you a prediction from a famous Italian scientist. He predicts that a new glacial age may come about in 10,000 years. And among the cities that may be buried under a 1,000 feet of ice are Moscow, Berlin, and Chicago. And here you are, worried about that snow in your driveway. You know, Monitor is a live program, but some portions are pre-recorded. The time right now in Athens is 2.30 in the morning, and it's 1962. <laughs> New Year's Eve in Times Square. Be there tonight on NBC Radio.
WRC News on the Half Hour. Now speaking from the WRC Newsroom, here's Howard Streeter. Former United States Intelligence Chief Alan Dulles says that Fidel Castro's growing military strength helped set the timetable for last April's unsuccessful attempt to overthrow the communist dictator. On NBC's Meet the Press tonight, Dulles denied that the refugee invasion failed through lack of intelligence, and he said the United States never expected it would be followed by a popular uprising in Cuba. President Kennedy has exchanged New Year's greetings with Soviet Premier Khrushchev, with the president reminding the premier of their responsibility for strengthening peace in 1962. The message from Moscow acknowledged that progress toward peace depends on the state of Soviet-American relations. In East Germany, communist leader Walter Ulbricht called closing of the Berlin border a great victory in the fight for peace. Across the wall, West Berlin Mayor Willy Brandt assured his people they will remain free next year. The President and Mrs. Kennedy called on the President's ailing father, Joseph Kennedy, today at a Palm Beach hospital. After an afternoon cruise on his yacht, the President and his wife joined other members of the family later for dinner and dancing tonight at the home of friends in Palm Beach. Commerce Secretary Luther Hodges reports that the national economy gained over 3% this year, and he said he hopes 1962 will show a 4% improvement. Hodges foresees no tax cuts next year, and urges caution on any increases in wages and prices. The Kennedy administration reportedly has found a surprising swing of business opinion in favor of the president's major tax goal for 1962, the investment credit plan to increase industry spending on new plants and equipment. Veteran congressmen discount such optimism, but the administration will make a strong pitch for it to spur United States competition with foreign producers. National Democratic Chairman John Bailey predicts the 1962 congressional elections will be a test of political strength between Democrats and what he calls the right-wing extremists of the Republican Party. He accuses the GOP of forming a new political axis with those he calls the reckless radicals of the far right. The traditional New Year's honors list of Britain's uh, Queen Elizabeth was issued tonight. Among lesser lights, the Queen knighted an army general who fired Conrad Adenauer as mayor of Cologne, Germany, after World War II. Adenauer, now West, Ger uh, West German Chancellor, was accused of not getting Reconstruction started fast enough. In the Middle East, an attempt by Arab writers, supported by 60 army backers, to seize power in Lebanon was put down in brief battles today in Beirut and in a mountain area. Five persons were killed. The chief of the right-wing Popular Socialist Party and 50 others were arrested. Reports reaching Baghdad say Kurdish tribesmen in northern Iraq have renewed their rebellion against Iraq Premier Qassam's government. Qassam called the fresh fighting suspicious in view of the tense situation over its claims to the oil-rich sheikdom of Kuwait. Britain has been hard hit by blizzards which covered the island with deep snow and paralyzed all transport except in the southwest counties Drifts up to six feet block roads. London airports were shut down, and trains ran late or not at all. Cold winter, winter continues to plague much of this country east of the Rockies. A new flow of Canadian air fed new snowfalls in the eastern Great Lakes area, with Buffalo and Watertown, New York, hard hit. The National Safety Council has praised United States motorists for holding down the death toll on the highways thus far in the holiday weekend. The latest count of traffic fatalities since 6 o'clock local time Friday is 146. High school and university students joined by a few adults picketed the White House today to open a 24-hour vigil and fast in support of disarmament and against nuclear tests. Some of the 50 persons participating are from the Student Peace Union and Peace Action Center in Washington. The weather now for Washington and vicinity, cloudy and not so cold tonight, but light snow beginning later tonight. Cloudy with snow possibly changing to rain before ending Monday. Low tonight in the upper 20s, high Monday in the middle 30s. The current temperature, 36 degrees. Howard Streeter, WRC News. Listen throughout the weekend for the latest news from the WRC Newsroom in Washington. You have never really tasted seafood until you dine at O'Donnell's deep WRC, WRC-FM, NBC in Washington, 7.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
The UN in 1961 and the UN in 1962. That's what we'll be hearing about at this half hour with the help of Secretary General Uthant, his executive assistant, Andrew Cordier, and NBC's Leon Pearson. And, of course, other monitor features, also brought to you by your Sunday night host, Frank McGee. As we turn into the new year, the United Nations is in serious trouble. Many voices in this country are demanding that the United States get out of the United Nations. And Ambassador Adlai Stevenson has said that the failure of the U.N. to take action against the Indian invasion of Goa could result in the sort of evidence which crippled the League of Nations. I'd like to discuss this danger with Leon Pearson, NBC News correspondent and an observer of the United Nations since its inception. Leon, do you think that the blue and white United Nations flag will continue to fly? Well, Frank, I think it would be a mistake to minimize the danger. The U.N. is not going to stay there where it is just because it has the physical plant. The U.N. could collapse before spring, and the buildings could be rented out for office space. I think we should face up to this danger. The support of the U.N. is too lopsided. It's like a, a football team with a good halfback and a weak line. The U.N. depends too much on the United States, which pays about half the costs. And I think everybody recognizes there's a growing disenchantment in this country. If we should pull out, the U.N. would collapse. Well, President Kennedy is about to ask Congress for still more money for the United Nations, Leon, $100 million or half of the new bond issue subscription. Will that be approved, do you think? I suppose so in the end, but there will be a heated debate, which might be a very good thing. How do you figure? Well, it might give some of the non-paying members a little shock. I'm speaking not only of the communists, but the Africans and the Asians. They make up just about half the entire membership, and they're flying pretty high. The Afro-Asians supported or refused to condemn the Indian takeover of Goa. In the Congo, it's the policy of this bloc which is being carried out largely at the expense of the United States. What is, what's the cost of the Congo operation, Leon? Frank, it's $10 million a month, and the U.S. pays 47.5%. Well, Leon, what's your reaction to the fact that France has refused to pay any part of this cost? I think that is indis uh, indefensible, an expression of de Gaulle's private pique. It's just as if you said <laughs> to the U.S. Bureau of Internal Revenue, I don't like some of Mr. Kennedy's policies, so... I refuse to pay my taxes. I don't think it would work, Leon. But if the United States should take that policy... Oh, that would be a calamity. It must not happen. The United Nations is too much needed in the world. It does too much good in little ways that are not publicized. Eliminating malaria, finding water in arid land, setting up public school programs. And in the big things, the Congo, for example, it well may be that the UN intervention there has prevented a full-scale war over Africa between Russia and the United States. Mm -hmm. But I've got a better answer than my own, Frank. I took a monitor microphone to the 38th floor of the UN building for an interview with Andrew Cordier, a gentleman from Indiana, by the way, who has been with the UN from the beginning, 1945, and he's now undersecretary. I mentioned the dire predictions being made about the future of the UN, and I asked him whether, as we enter the new year, he expected the UN to survive in its present form. Well, Mr. Pearson, that's a very, very good question and a very pointed one because, as you say, there is quite a bit of discussion along that exact line. My reply to it would be, of course, it will survive. One main reason why it will survive is that it must survive. In other words, we live in a world of multilateral relations. Tens of thousands, millions of contacts of an international character have developed in our generation as out of the miracle hand of science and technology. We don't live in the 1914 world any longer. We don't even live in the 1940 world. We live in the 1961 world. And that world is one of, one of tens of thousands of interlacing relationships that cannot be dealt with bilaterally, nor can they be dealt with in isolation. Therefore, the only answer is a multilateral approach. The only way in which you can engage in a multilateral approach is through an organization like the United Nations. And therefore, my chief reason for saying that the United Nations will survive is that it must survive. Or as Mr. Hammersfield used to say, if it did not survive, another organization like it would have to be created. And therefore, the question of survival is related really to the question of absolute need. But it is being menaced. And which do you consider to be the most menacing to the U.N., the thunder on the left or the thunder on the right? Well, it's very, very hard to know which thunder is the more dangerous to the United Nations. 
I could answer all other kinds of thunder. For example, the thunder of indifference, the thunder of misunderstanding. Uh, there are many different types of uh, attitudes, political and psychological attitudes, that really are in a way a menace to the United Nations. But aren't you concerned, Mr. Cordier, with some of the attacks, some of them from very responsible individuals and organizations against the United Nations here in the United States, or to be specific, what would happen to the U.N. if the U.S. Congress refused to make appropriations for the U.S. contribution at its uh, present levels? Well, that would be a very, very serious situation indeed, and uh, uh, that uh, leads me to say also that I very, very much hope that uh, the financial burden of the United Nations can be much more widely dispersed and more widely spread. My own feeling is that uh, while it is not desirable for one country to provide such a large share of the support, that I hope very, very much that this will only be an interim situation and that the support can be more widely spread over the years to come. I think there are a lot of people who would second that hope. Mr. Cordier, I have one final question. This has to do with the uh, Congo particularly. If you could turn back the clock, here we are at the end of 1961. Suppose you could revert to a year ago. Uh, would you wish that the United Nations could have undertaken the Congo operation, or some Congo operation, on quite different terms, with less uh, military involvement than it has done? One of the central factors in the Congo, Mr. Pearson, is the fact that in a certain sense, uh, the ONUC, that is the force that we have in the Congo, uh, was never uh, uh, geared in such forms as to be a military force. It was, in fact, a peace force in terms of the United Nations Charter in order to make it possible for a central government to produce as rapidly as possible a stable regime. Well, all of that went awry because of the... Uh, the successive political developments in the country, the breakdown of the central government, the non-existence of the central government for so many months, the intervention of external forces, the non-support, or too large a measure of non-support, of the UN action by uh, some of the countries that could very well have provided diplomatic support. Remember that in no case would I criticize individual countries, uh, except in the sense that it is certainly in the interest of the world community to bring the total UN responsibility, of particularly on the military side, to an end with all possible speed. What the Congo Saudi needs from us is technical assistance, and we'd like to put our money into that field rather than to spend it in a continuing program of military assistance. Thank you very much, Mr. Cordier. Frank, it seems to me that that last point, non-support in the Congo, is vital. The UN cannot carry out a gigantic operation of this kind on two cylinders. It's being torn apart. But there's another voice to be heard, heard from, the acting Secretary General, Uthant, who, by the way, was elected without the Troika harness that the Soviets proposed. Mm -hmm. In this statement, he looks ahead to 1962. A new year begins today in the life of men and of nations. In the last 12 months, the world has passed through many dangers and difficulties. These dangers and difficulties are still with us as we begin the new year. They are our inheritance from the year just ended and from others still earlier. However, in this new year, we inherit also the knowledge that survival in our times is not possible without cooperation, and that cooperation in turn is possible only given the strength and the will among nations as among men to submit individual interests to the discipline of the larger good. Let us start the new year then with a resolve to advance further, firm in step upon this road. And let us, in so doing, make 1962 the bright beginning of the decade of development so recently and unanimously proclaimed by the representatives of the world assembled in the United Nations. Uh, Frank, a final word. 
Only yesterday we received a dispatch from Elizabethville saying the UN troops and Katanga police were patrolling the streets together. The forces that have been fighting each other only a few days ago. If this ceasefire can stick and UN forces reduced and withdrawn, the crisis in the UN will have passed. But I'm holding my breath. Thank you, Leon, for a most interesting report. And now, a message from a sponsor. And now, noted Washington columnist Drew Pearson. I have reported danger signals from various parts of the country of Cole's contagion. In my business, I can't afford colds. I have to meet a deadline every day. Infectious germs and mouth and throat can really swarm into action. Increase a cold's discomfort. Make the cold drag on. So fight cold's contagion with Listerine antiseptic. Because Listerine kills germs on contact by millions. And in these final hours of 1961, you're here on the Monitor Beacon. Join the big swing to highs, that's where you get all three. Quality, convenience, economy. Get the best, get it fast, get it for less at your nearby highs. There's a highs near you. For happy holiday entertaining, start with High's Super Rich Eggnog. It's ready to pour and serve, priced at just 69 cents a quart when you buy the half-gallon jug. Be sure to get yours early so you won't be disappointed. And you can stop by High's for everything you need for the weekend. Fresh milk, bread, butter, eggs, baked goods, party snacks, ice cubes, party punch, and many other things you need. That's High's, open all day today until 11 o'clock this evening, open New Year's Day from noon till 8 p.m. On this New Year's Eve, a prediction that comes from the California Institute of Technology. By the year 2050, the world population will have reached at least 10 billion. But science will have kept pace and there will be plenty of food, metals, and minerals to go around. Now, isn't that good news? January 1st, it's a day that marks a beginning, but has it spelled hope and peace and a fresh start to mankind year after year? Or perhaps in our hearts, but certainly not in our headlines. Although January 1st is traditionally a slow day for news, 
the tradition is not quite correct. For if you look back through the years, you can see clearly that many important stories have broken right at the beginning of the year. For instance, January 1st, 1935. Everything was in readiness for the opening of the trial the next day of Bruno Hoffman, accused of the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. January 1st, 1941. The RAF struck hard at Italy with raids on Taranto, Naples, and Libya. January 1st, 1942, MacArthur united his lines for a crucial stand in the Philippines. January 1st, 1944, a Russian victory as Soviet troops plunged ahead near Poland and Latvia. January 1st, 1945, our Third Army troops gained up to six miles near Bastogne. January 1st, 1949, the troubled government of the Republic of Korea, headed by Syngman Rhee, received full recognition from the United States in the first official act of 1949 by President Truman. January 1st, 1952, the stop story was of the heroism of one man. His name was Captain Henrik Kurt Carlson, the only man left aboard the disabled ship, the Flying Enterprise, which was listing heavily in a storm-tossed ocean. January 1st, 1958, there was a revolt against the government of General Jimenez in Venezuela. On January 1st, 1959, another revolt, the results of which we all know today. Batista and his regime fled from Cuba as Castro moved to take power. Yes, that's how the New Year began in 1959. New Year's Day of 1961, rebel troops were advancing in Laos. New Year's Day, contrary to tradition, doesn't seem to be a quiet day. It seems to be a day on which the world has made a great deal of news. Maybe someday on New Year's Day, the headlines will really speak of a fresh beginning, of peace, of man's determination to live together in amity. And when those headlines are made, we'll be happy to bring them to you, you may be sure. A message now from a sponsor. And now, noted Washington columnist Drew Pearson with an important message. I have reported danger signals from various parts of the country of Cole's contagion and increasing absenteeism from work and school. In my business, I can't afford colds or absenteeism. No matter what happens, I have to meet a deadline every day. Now, infectious germs in your mouth and throat increase a cold's discomfort, can make the cold drag on. But gargling with Listerine antiseptic does a terrific job of killing these germs by millions. In fact, in 12-year tests, thousands of people who gargle with Listerine antiseptic twice daily had fewer, milder colds. So ladies and gentlemen on that record, and as a Listerine user, remember, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. To guard against cold's contagion, take a tip from one who knows and gargle at least twice daily with Listerine antiseptic. A few minutes ago, we got our first word of the new year from London by way of the British Broadcasting Corporation. Right now in the British Isles, 1962 is just a few minutes old. A snowstorm has complicated things for New Year's Eve revelers, but the crowds in Piccadilly Circus are nevertheless enthusiastic. Here's the report, beginning with Big Ben, tolling the beginning of the new year. Here in Britain, the new year is just 15 minutes old, and in the almost arctic conditions of snow and ice that we're suffering from, most people chose to drink a toast to it by their own firesides. But in London, there were some who did brave the weather to greet 1962 in traditional fashion in Piccadilly Circus, or Trafalgar Square. And Edward Brainer was at one of them, and he switched on his microphone just as the last minute or so of 1961 was running out. Well, London didn't get one of those white Christmases the children love, but we're certainly getting a white New Year. Our first snowfall of this winter, and the whole city is wearing white to welcome 1962. The snow has also cut down some of the enthusiasm of that welcome. The weather experts haven't recorded a colder New Year's Eve. Road conditions are treacherous, and the railways of advised would be revelers not to make their usual journey to this favourite here at Piccadilly. And even Big Ben down at Westminster was in trouble today. The famous clock stopped chiming, but they're hoping it'll recover in time to chime this old year out and the new one in. But looking down now, the crowds here in Piccadilly are very much faster than we've come to expect. Usually we've got thousands here waiting to celebrate this new year coming in. 
now there's just a few hundred below me. A few balloons, plenty of policemen, but nothing much for them to do at the moment as we wait for 1962. And may we say to all the people who are already living in 1962, a very happy new year. We're still in 1961, but we're planning to catch up very soon. Britain, of course, has been hard hit by blizzards which covered the island with deep snow and paralyzed all transport except in the southwest. Drifts up to six feet block some of the roads, and London airports are shut down and trains are running late or not running at all. Now, a quick story from the news. This one comes from South Africa, where seasoned ticket holders on a small local line have made a somewhat unusual complaint to the railroad management. Normally, the 7.30 train runs from 15 to 30 minutes late, and the passengers have come to make due allowance for this. But one recent morning, the train was on time, and about half the regular passengers missed it. Well, the passengers have petitioned the railroad not to have the train run on time again. It isn't fair. And here's an unusual announcement. Monitor is partly pre-recorded. UCLA meets Minnesota in the Rose Bowl tomorrow on NBC. 